That Naturopathic Podcast. TNP. Hello there. Hi, and thanks for joining us. I'm Dr. Michelle Fobega, naturopathic doctor. And I'm Dr. David Miller, ND, and we hear your frustrations. This show is for you. This show is for you if you're feeling like your current healthcare strategy is not getting to the root cause or the underlying reasons for your health. This show is for you if you've been told that you're fine, but you definitely don't feel very well. This show is for you if you're walking out of your doctor's office with one, two, three, four, or even five medications without any mention of diet, lifestyle, or a long-term game plan. This show is for you if you've got several specialists taking care of you, but no one is really putting all the pieces together. This show is for you if you believe that health should be part of healthcare. These problems have solutions. We know it. Our patients know it. And we want you to know it. Naturopathic medicine is the solution that you should know about. Welcome to another episode of That Naturopathic Podcast. Dr. David Miller, ND here. Dr. Michelle Pobega, ND, also here or there, depending on your perspective. I'm, I'm, I'm here. I'm here. You're here, but it's there to them. <laughs> yes. Um, today, we are going to talk. You're the star about- today. Yeah. Oh, uh, um, today, I wanted to just bring to light a topic that I've seen come up a few times. My first patient like this was a few years ago. It was quite remarkable. And I've recently gotten a few more clients where they've had some kind of GI infection and they've had a hell of a time recovering from it, or they had the infection, did the antibiotics, did the whatever, but things have never quite been the same since, right? Um, And sometimes this is given a diagnosis of post-infectious IBS. And I had a client like that a few years ago who basically just had the runs 24 seven, which is not pleasant. And mm-hmm. he had seen gastroenterologists and specialists and this and that, and everybody just gave him the label of post-infectious IBS, but without any kind of solutions. Um, and then he ended up in my office and we helped him and he's no longer walking surprise shitstorm for lack of mm-hmm. phrasing, which is a huge shift in their quality of life, you know? So you know, the only people who like diarrhea are constipated people. <laughs> and the only people who are constipated are the ones that appreciate a diarrhea moment. Oh, God. So so I wanted to bring this up because I think a lot of people maybe have the idea or the notion that once the vomiting and the diarrhea stopped, they're fine. And if if there's been like a war zone, there's usually some cleanup that still has to happen after. And it's always really good idea to facilitate that cleanup in the aftermath of an infection um, so that we don't leave any vulnerabilities for something else to kind of take a hold and develop. Um, Mm -hmm. So that's kind of what I want to discuss in today's episode. Yeah, I like it. I like, uh, I've looked into post-infectious IBS in the past, Uh, lots of Campylobacter, Salmonella, cases yeah. come to mind yeah c-diff um, seal yeah and c-diff but yeah. i always i looked at c-diff as a almost a whole different thing on its own it's such a oh it's a crazy it's thing. wild i have yeah. a client right now who got c-diff early a c-diff infection early in 2020 but didn't realize what it was and when everything shut down because of covid she was having a hell of a time getting treated and tested everything just kept getting postponed and prolonged and she just had this chronic diarrhea for months and months and then finally people were taking her seriously and willing to do some testing 
um, and figured out that it was C. diff and uh, she did some antibiotics and then things would settle marginally. And literally it's been three years of her having chronic diarrhea. Uh, yeah, that's so we are working to unpack that problem. Now. Yep. <laughs> um, a female, yeah, I was looking at some research here. It looks like a uh, female predisposition for post-infectious IBS 2.86 compared to 1.47 relative risk, mm. uh, which is, um, they say confounded by female preponderance of psychological distress when controlled for psychological distress. It sounds even. So what does this mean? Uh, you know, this means if you've got like any predisposition to sort of psychological distress or, or, uh, what's it called when you just freak out a little bit more than someone else who's a little more stoic, whatever that is, um, emotional lability, whatever, um, you're more likely to get, uh, post-infectious IBS. So I thought that was interesting. Well, we do know how closely related your gut microbiome and brain. is to and is to your brain and neurotransmitter mm-hmm. production and mm-hmm. and your and stress response, how it affects the vagus nerve and then how that has a ripple effect on the digestive system. So again, it's just a matter of how interconnected everything is. So I'm not surprised. Um, that, that doesn't surprise me. <laughs> no, I guess the the female to male ratio did surprise me. I I hmm. did have to. Say, well, but... I think that females tend to be more worriers. I think females tend to um, ruminate more on 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 details, um, and I think we are slightly more emotional beings, which is a good thing. And some of these things, us to be able to pay attention to details and to think of the greater good and think of the bigger picture, is is a strength. But I think it's also part of our weaknesses when it gets a little bit blown out of proportion, and then we kind of cause our own illnesses by being too far off the deep end in those qualities or or men could be more the other way because like as a biological male i've spent a few times in biological male washrooms and the things that i have heard in the washroom uh, would, would like they're enough to like enough to scare me at times like the things i've heard and i'm like and then guy walks out like oh that's you know just another day at the office you know like wow that actually brings up something in my mind and my patient Uh yesterday was like I think my husband needs to come see you because when I was asking her at her initial visit about the quality of her poop what it looks like does it stick to the toilet what's the color is there oil slick is there undigested she was like my husband's is stinky and it sticks he should probably come see you and I think the thing is is that men probably have a lot of might be more susceptible to post-infectious IBS than they've realized is because they maybe don't report it, it, but they normalize it. it. Exactly. Cause they're a lot like a lot of men's poop habits are garbage. Yeah. Spend some time in the men's washroom. You probably can now. Um, (laughs) And you'll, you'll know what I'm talking about. Like as like, I, I don't know. I have a, maybe it's a a juvenile Hmm. sense of humor at times. So I'm like, I sometimes just want to laugh or just go like, wow, like, are you okay, dude? Like that's, that's a lot of something happening there that doesn't probably shouldn't be happening. So yeah. Is it women are hyper reporting or men hypo reporting or is it both? Who knows? Who knows? knows? 
Um, but, other uh, things that contribute to risk, it sounded like uh, was a longer acute gastroenteritis. So if uh, if you have a longer than maybe one week, let's say acute gastroenteritis, yep. way more likely to have these post-infectious IBS things you're talking about. Yep. Um, another thing was it appears like bacterial infections are more likely to release or to uh, result to release. Oh my God. Get your words straight, Dave, to uh, result in uh, post-infectious IBS than viral. Mm-hmm. Um, and then a whole bunch of other stuff that is, I mean, it just seems like we're repeating ourselves at times on the podcast, which is either um, it's either irritating to some people or, or kind of confirming that we're on the right track with some of the stuff we're saying. It's like pre-existing susceptibilities are going to sort of be... Uh, tested let's say when you get any kind of pathogenic uh challenge and uh it's it's it goes back to like i know you're gonna say yeah it's not over when the diarrhea is over or whatever but also like let's build ourselves up in you know with preventative health so that if and when because we are going to run into pathogens um we run into them our systems and and tissues and organs and all that are in better shape to deal with the um the problem uh better from the get-go it's a lot to heart. It's a lot harder to take down, like a like a building that's well built than one that's already like made of straw and fragile. Like what is it like the 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 I huff and I puff and I blow the house down. It was like the straw house, the whatever house, and then the brick house. If you have a straw mm-hmm. house for your gastrointestinal function, it's going to collapse with a little bit of extra insults. Let's be real. Um, mm-hmm. So I think I think that's a lot to say to it. And I'm just going to go out on the limb here, Dave. Um, and I'm going to go ahead and say that most people's GI tracts are probably not in the best state based on the quality of food most North Americans eat. And I don't even know if I can call it food because it's probably food like chemical substances, the amount of other kind of chemicals and alcohol and whatever that people consume, antibiotics being used, stressful lifestyles or sleep, like everything is disrupting the microbiome. And everything, mm-hmm. and, and and like you were saying, high incidence of gastro um, gastritis and how betaine is helping a lot of people. If you have low stomach acid, that's going to make you even more susceptible for an yeah. infection because your acid is supposed to kill off bugs coming in with your food. So I yeah. think there is already a very inherent vulnerability in people's digestive systems. And I do, I do stand firmly with the argument that most chronic disease stems from poor digestive health or it, it is playing some role in it. Um Going out on a limb, yet still standing firmly. Yeah, that's it. Michelle Pobega. No, that's I think it. you're right. I think you're right. But again, I sort of ascribe to the <laughs> same um, kind of philosophy there. Yeah. Uh, when people sit in this chair beside me here in the office, they either have a neurological and or gut issue. <laughs> yeah. I would say every... I don't know who doesn't really fit into that. So... Yeah. yeah. I mean, I have people come yeah. to see me who don't have a gut issue as their primary concern, but then we start talking about things more and I'm kind of like, are you sure? You know, like you have an eczema. Usually I'm like, that's probably a gut issue, even if, you, you know, or a lot of people don't even know I identify that they've had poor bowel habits. Like I had someone who came in and had loose bowel habits and he didn't think that was anything wrong with it. He just thought that was his normal. And I was like, no. <laughs> He's one of those guys I've sat beside, I think. That's it. He's one of the guys in the bathroom that you've been, you've had to ask if he's okay. So, so 
I, I think there's there's a lot to be said as to maybe why people are being taken down or or might be taken down by an infection, uh, mm-hmm. whether it's traveler's diarrhea or a food poisoning infection or a viral gastroenteritis, um, anything like that. But, you know, looking even in preparation for the for the visceral manipulation course, I'm reading about this book and how Not it talks girl. about uh, how it talks about and it confirms things that I found out from osteopaths that when you have a parasitic infection, it can affect the motility or even the mobility, but I think it's more the motility of an organ system. So I've had people who have liver flukes and then the osteopath says the liver is rigid. It's not working well. It's hard. It's not pulsing the way it's supposed to. It's not moving through the rib cage the way it's supposed to. So infections also have that effect. And I'm literally reading the gallbladder and the liver section and it's talking about viral infections, bacterial infections, and parasitic infections and how they can affect the movement of your organs. And then when the movement is affected, then function can be affected. And same thing with your intestines, same thing with valves in your intestinal tract. So these infections can also start to have a different type of effect that most people are not really thinking about. Yeah. I mean, think about if you are you going to get your, the water you want to drink, you're going to get it from a swamp or from a waterfall, you know, like a lot of bugs want things. Oh, we got more analogies. Hey, more analogies. (laughs) Uh, but really, like bugs are going to grow. They, a lot of bugs, if they want to, say, adhere to the home that they've found in your uh, gastrointestinal tract, which has a current, basically a net current sort of through it uh, from mm-hmm. up to down. They're probably a lot of them are going to want to slow things down, you know, and some of them, you know, some of them are going to release factors that cause more loose stools like exotoxins, yeah. et cetera. But yeah. there are going to be some that want to. Yeah. Like you said, they're going to want to slow down or change the motility that serves them better. Yeah. And then like there, I also think of things when I was looking at infections in the enteric nervous system and how it affects the enteric nervous system and the recovery of it, it can impact the enteric nervous system and it can persist well after the pathogen is cleared. And let's just say you have an infection, but, um, you still have diarrhea for several months after even though the infection is cleared, having chronic diarrhea, you have to start thinking about other things. Like what's my electrolyte balance? Is that affecting my microbiome? Is it causing inflammation in my intestinal tract? Mm -hmm. Like what are the residual effects of having that type of symptom for a long period of time, even though the infection itself has been cleared. And I think that's where a lot of people don't think preventatively and they don't think ahead and they don't think, um, that they still need to do something necessarily. Um, and I was reading even like long-term changes, um, that can occur to the ENS can also, um, where was, where was my little excerpt about this? I was reading it from an article, but they're often accompanied. So like the exact mechanism of post-infectious IBS is yet to be elucidated, but disease is often accompanied by chronic inflammation, microbial dysbiosis, and also alterations to the enteric nervous system function. And mm-hmm. any of that could lead to long-term consequences, if not properly resolved post-infection yeah yeah and i think you know worth saying here too like it's it's this is a this is a diagnosis of exclusion mm-hmm. um with no specific disease markers and and like you said no definitive therapy exists because it depends on right. you know what actually you know transpired with what bug and what did it do to what organ and how bad and all that um <clears throat> so i think that's that's important to say is that it really uh, it's just it's like IBS, but we know it came on after an infection. Yeah, which and I the- wonder how many IBS cases actually 
came on after an infection. Well, I remember learning in SIBO courses how when you have traveler's diarrhea or uh, food poisoning, the enterotoxins in the infection itself starts to affect the immunological function. And then that might have a ripple effect and then change how the MMC functions or that migrating motor complex functions, which is the house cleaning in between food being pushed through the intestines there's that house cleaning operation and then that could lead Mm -hmm. to backlogging of microbes and undigested food particles and then creating a fermentation in an inflammatory environment which then leads to possibly SIBO and that's where those infections happen and if you have one and then you have a, a second infection and I don't know if there's a specific time frame but that will reinforce that almost like immunological dysfunction um and I always found that interesting. And we, and a lot of quote unquote IBS, there's a significant portion that is SIBO related. It's not all related to SIBO, but there's a significant portion that is SIBO related. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah. I think but, uh, looking at, like looking at the paper hmm. that I'm looking at and, and what you were saying too, is I, I think it looks like there's a couple of really common sort of uh, physiological things going on that you can maybe focus on no matter who you are or whatever. And and that seemed like um, the easiest ones to address maybe would be the intestinal inflammation and, and the, uh, um, the intestinal permeability with regards to like, there's pretty good supplementation and herbs and everything that you can do to, to address those aspects. And I don't think that'll, you know, that's not going to be enough maybe for everyone, but it's, it, it helps give you like um, sort of like a, a, a good basis upon which to, to build whatever uh, treatment regimen you're going to do. I think a gold standard is depending on how inflamed they are, I'm using something like a GI soothe at the onset. Right. And if the, if a client has chosen to take an antibiotic or not for the infection to be determined either way, um, they're often coming to me after the fact they're not usually coming to me with the active infection. Let's be real. Most people are going to their doctors and getting an antibiotic. And then for the recovery process, it's usually, what do we do to resolve some of the irritation? So something like that GI soothe from Cytomatrix that we've often sung the praises are of, and the demulcents, maybe it requires a little bit of cilium to bind the bowels, to allow for a slower motility. So you can start getting a grip on things. Um, maybe we need to do, I'm a big fan of the S Boulardi, as we know, I might do a high intensity probiotic as well to just kind of like take up more space so that whatever Mm -hmm. might've been dysbiotic, or if the infection is still kind of existing and post antibiotics, we need to kind of like shift gears, doing alkaline dieting to making sure that we have an alkaline environment, feeding the microbiome, changing, you know, cleaning up the diet, allowing for things to not be more inflamed and out of control than they need to be so that the body can Mm -hmm. heal itself. That's really what you want to do. And depending on the level of inflammation, maybe you give some anti-inflammatories, but like that would be like the starting steps, I would say. And most people don't think about that. Yeah, they're pretty, uh, yeah, I would say those are pretty safe. Safe yeah. bets to start with. I have used uh, an isopathic <laughs> too. Um, I had a, a woman who it was very clear she had Campylobacter jejuni, and so we gave her uh, the isopathic homeopathic of that, nice. which it stimulated her. I don't know if it was a, a resolving factor, but it definitely shook shook up the system a little bit, and it needed it. Yeah. Um, it's a few years ago, so I maybe would have done things a little bit differently now, but that I find that interesting. If you know the bug, perhaps a, an isopathic might be helpful. I also feel like it's kind of relevant to tell the audience that 
when you have an infection, your body's natural reaction is to expel the infection. And as uncomfortable and as unpleasant as vomiting and diarrhea is, it is also your body's natural way of trying to purge the infection itself. So taking an emodium and plugging yourself up isn't necessarily ideal if you can help it. If you have to get on a plane for 12 hours, then you're probably going to want an emodium. But if you can <laughs> allow your body to get rid of what it's trying to get rid of and facilitate that within a reasonable way, then that's kind of what you're, that's why your body's having that reaction as well as like these infections also affecting the enteric nervous response, which then triggers the diarrhea or the vomiting, but that's part of your body's natural response to these things. That's how it's yeah, designed I, to treat them. I think you have to take the whole, the whole, the whole picture to know just whether, <laughs> how bad the, yeah. the expulsion is. I yeah. mean, probably the more acute it is, the more necessary it is, the more it's an, the more it's a long-term chronic thing, the more it's right. a questionable uh, thing, just sort of like chronic pain. <clears throat> once the once the thing that elicited the pain symptom is gone and it no longer serves you to be in pain and it yes. just becomes a chronic pain, it's no yes. longer serving its purpose. It's it's time to get rid of the chronic pain. Uh, um, yeah, so thank maybe, you for clarifying. Maybe, maybe something like that applies to this too. I'm not sure. Well, I think that at the beginning, your body's trying to get rid of it and purging it. But when it becomes prolonged, like if you're having diarrhea chronically for like a week, three years, then I, right? Three years, a week, et cetera. And you're losing electrolytes, your acid base balance is off. Like there's a lot of that are a lot of things are going to have a consequence because of that. Mm -hmm. You might need something to bind things up just so that you can. I don't know, your quality of life isn't completely ruined. While you hopefully do the deeper work, you might need something to to help support that. Um, but mm -hmm. the onset, the first 24 to 48 hours, like if your body's trying to get rid of stuff, you kind of have to, you got to, it's supposed to get rid of it. That's what we want, right? Mm -hmm. But when it becomes an extended period of time, then you might have to take something to minimize that the severity of those responses because the, if the infection has gone, then now you're kind of like, what is now I'm just being depleted for no reason. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. Another, uh, another plug for the stomach here too. just, you know, if you mm -hmm. have issues with uh, motility being excessive diarrhea or, you know, excessive uh, constipation, don't overlook the stomach. It is the real sort of initial propagator of those things. I've seen it way too many times to not share it way too many times. So yeah. it's counterintuitive that the end of the line is highly influenced by the beginning of the line, the stomach. Awesome. So that's kind of, that. that's what I wanted to say. Do you have anything else to, more to contribute to this, Dave? Uh, you know, I, I guess I would, I would incorporate, um, and you will, you watch Michelle, you will do this more and more as you go into your uh, career as a, uh, visceral osteopathic <laughs> integrating visceral osteopathic manipulations into your practice but i would honestly i would do uh i just do a physical exam uh i do a kind of modified physical exam with osteopathic insights and also some percussion and i'm not using percussion for the sound i'm using it for the mechanoreceptor sensitivity if you do that i, I mean you you're just, your treatments are going to be so much better. You got to put your, I mean, I'm, I'm sure everyone loves virtual everything, but you put your hands on people and you got four, you know, you got 40 people with post-infectious IBS. 
I'm going to get probably 40 different signs from those people if I actually know how to skillfully examine their abdomen. And that will then individualize uh, and I would say make uh, improve patient care with just a little bit of physical exam. Um, so that's what I would add to this. Well, yes, yes, yes. There's all these basics like we talked about inflammation yeah. and blah, blah, blah. But get your hands on people uh, if it's in the upper right quadrant. And, it's and, under and the ribs. get your hands on people in a consensual manner. <laughs> Michelle, I didn't think I, I had want, to say it. Just wanted to clarify. Yeah, because <laughs> you know, every time, every time you say you put your put your hands on put your put your hands on more bodies, my brain always naturally just look at your brain. Oh, but see, this is my things, so <laughs> my consent form on my paper here. It says consent. It's a big, it's a big thing for me. It is. It is a big, <laughs> obviously if we are working within those parameters, uh, but, uh, but yes. <laughs> yeah. So with consent, uh, yeah. <laughs> get a good physical examination of the admin and it will, it'll make uh, treatments individualized and more effective and hopefully even simpler. That's yeah. why I'm going down this road. Cause it's super intriguing. Um, but anyways, Guys, if you guys get a GI infection, some sort of gastroenteritis, whether it's viral, parasitic, bacterial, yes, the first 24 hours to 48 hours might suck, maybe even up to a week, but the work is not done after that. Make sure to heal and seal, reduce inflammation, improve gastrointestinal like tissue healing, support the microbiome, right? Those that's 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 the follow-up that needs to be done after an infection to ensure that you do not create another vulnerability that down the line might bite you in the ass. Pun intended, maybe. I don't know. So. Let's leave it at that. <laughs>